doing something recently. It's been at Rachel's Rachel's request. Um, We've been watching old movies that are near and dear to her heart. We started with The Sound of Music. I knew I knew I was going to get some hate from this. This is the first uh, a couple weeks ago. It was the first time I've ever seen that movie, and I pray it will be the last. <laughs> it's just meh, meh. What could do without it, right? Holding strong with my dad. He's not a fan either. His sister used to make him watch it growing up. He hated it. We also recently watched The Wizard of Oz. Also, meh. For me, personally, most of you have seen it. Obviously, if you haven't, spoiler alert, the wizard's a fraud. (laughs) He can't give the lion courage. He's not able to give the tin man a heart. He can't give the scarecrow a brain. These characters with, uh, what's the the lead character's name? The gal? Dorothy, thank you. I kept thinking Lucy. It's like, that ain't right. I paid a lot of attention, you can see, really into the Wizard of Oz. They're... They're, they hear about the wizard, they're excited to go to the Emerald City, all their hopes and dreams are pinned on finding this guy who's going to save them and give everything to them, and then they glimpse behind the curtain only to discover that he is not who he claimed to be, and all their hopes are dashed, and then they find out that they actually have courage and heart, and yeah, you know, it's a good movie, great movie. <laughs> this morning, this morning, we are going to follow our hopes as well. Somewhere else, down a a yellow brick road of sorts, to the end of the Bible, the book of Revelation. And we too are going to peel back the curtain that exists between the physical and the spiritual realms. And what we're going to find is quite different than what the folks in the Wizard of Oz find. Their hopes were dashed. Ours will not be. Because when we peel back the curtain, what we're going to find is not a wizard who is a fraud, but we are going to find a God who is good and righteous and true. A God who is more powerful and more able to accomplish things far beyond anything that we would even dream of asking or imagine of asking. Here's why I'm excited to look with you behind this curtain. The Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 13 that right now we live in a world where we see dimly. We don't see everything that is. We don't have the full picture. He says we only see in part. We have part of the story. And there's a problem that arises from our dim sight that we have when we live in this world. You see, we read the truths of Scripture, and it seems so clear, it seems so evident, it seems so hope-filled, but then we live our lives, and we're confronted with death and sadness and suffering. See, the harsh realities of life sometimes have a way of making us question whether or not God is even there. And if he is, is he good? There's no more harsh reality in life that makes us question the truths of scriptures more than suffering and perhaps even more still, suffering that comes as a result of death, the death of those we love. And so I want to kick off the series this morning. We're kicking off a new one. We're calling it The Good News About Death. And I thought it'd be helpful for us to get a spiritual glimpse, again, behind the curtain, to remember those who persevered through what we're going to read is called the great ordeal or a great tribulation. I believe that is life that we are now standing in. 
living today. We're going to glimpse behind the curtain and see saints that have gone before us through trials, testing, tribulation, and we're going to glimpse where they are standing. They're in the presence of the glorious Lord God Almighty. We're going to do that because remembering those who've gone before and ahead of us in faith, those who've passed but they've, they've kept the faith, because we remember those saints, we will be empowered to press on in hope and faith in our own lives today, even amidst death and suffering. And before we get into all of that, I was cur- I'm curious to know, show of hands, how many of you know what Wednesday was as far as holidays go in the church calendar? Anybody? Yeah, a couple of you. All Saints Day, okay? As, as we've kicked off the series in September, we're, we're in a series, we're following the Revised Common Lectionary, and it's, it's basically like a, a Bible reading plan that churches that are a little bit more liturgical, they, they go through, and they follow the church calendar. And I did not grow up in a church that followed the church calendar, so this has kind of been a, a new thing for me, but it's been, it's been fun. It's been an enriching and enlightening. And I, I did not know, I'll be honest, before I was getting ready for this, I, I had heard of All Saints Day, but didn't know much about it. Apparently, Every November 1st, there is such a thing in the liturgical church calendar called All Saints Day. It used to be called All Hallows. Hallows is like an old-timey English word that means saint. So it was called All Hallows. Those of you who've got your thinking caps on this morning, so that sounds like Halloween. Yeah, it does. Because Halloween, Hallow Eve, was the night before All Saints Day. And so the thinking was, we're going to spend time remembering saints on November 1st. And because of that, because that's a powerful time of, of building the faith of the church, Satan and his demons and the goblins are more active on the evening before that, which is how we got Halloween. A little fun fact for you. All that to say, I didn't know much about All Saints Day until I started reading about it. And as I set out to research it, I do what I tell you I normally do. I jump on gotquestions.org, right? It's like, maybe they, maybe they tell me something about what All Saints Day is. And they did. They told me, first, that All Saints Day really is, is a day to commemorate, to remember the lives of the saints. And I can get behind that biblically. If by that we mean that a saint is a, a man or a woman who loves Jesus. That's the most broad definition, biblically, that we can give for a saint. It's a person who loves Jesus, a person who has faith in Jesus. They're not not just special, venerated people by some religious institution, but it actually includes every single believer in the church. That means if you love Jesus and you're here today, you're a saint. You might be a saint who sometimes sins, as am I, but you are a saint Nevertheless, so being a saint is it's about our identity. That is who we are. And so to have a day where we specifically take time to set aside, to think about the saints, those who've, who've lived the, the, the race of faith well, they've persevered to the end and, and they've gone on to be with Jesus, to, to remember them, to commemorate them, to learn from their example, it's a beautiful thing. It's a good thing. And so that's a, that's a good part of All Saints Day. I kept reading, and uh, there's another part to it that I'm not so pumped about. Uh, Again, I could have read it wrong, so if I'm out of place here, you you can let me know. But from what I've read, also as a part of this day, it wasn't just to remember the saints, 
There's also an element, and in certain churches, there's an element where, where people would pray to the saints. They would inter- ask them to intercede on our behalf, that they might stand in and, and be a mediator of type to, to pray and, and, and do something for us. And I've got to be honest with you, church, I don't see that taught in the Bible anywhere. The only person that we're ever told to pray through is the triune God, to pray to the triune God, right? Our Father, who is in heaven, not some person. We're called to pray in the name of Jesus. We're called to invite the Holy Spirit to help us remember the word. We're we're called to pray to God, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And that's because he's the only person who's powerful enough, who cares enough to do anything about our prayers. He's also the only person who is worthy of our worship. If you're here this morning and you doubt that, I'd encourage you to go read the book of Hebrews. And you can, you can read for yourself that our great high priest and our mediator is not some saint or person, it's Jesus Christ. As Got Question summarizes, says, well, the Bible teaches that the dead in Christ are alive. They're alive, they're aware. It nowhere teaches us to ask for their intercession. Rather, it encourages and urges Christians to come boldly before the throne of grace, knowing that we have a great high priest and his name is Jesus Christ, who lives forever to make intercession for us. And you see the quotes from Hebrews. We're to depend upon Christ alone for salvation, Acts 4.12, and upon him alone for grace for Christian living after salvation as well. And the Bible speaks of Christ as being our one mediator, We don't need multiple, just one. It's Jesus between God and man. And so this morning, in our Enriching Tradition series, I thought we could enrich and redeem this holiday, the good part about it. That means we're not going to pray to any person or any saint this morning. But I do think we would be helped to remember those who've gone before us the saints who've left a legacy of faith behind for us to be encouraged by. So with that in mind, we're, I'll invite you to, to turn to Revelation 7 with me this morning. We're actually going to be in Revelation 6 first. <coughs> Excuse me. So you can turn there. As you're turning, uh, I'll give you a little context. The, the person who wrote Revelation, the book of Revelation, is a guy by the name of uh, John. The Apostle John. And John's been exiled to an island called Patmos. Apparently, this isn't in Scripture, but we've got some historical evidence. A guy named Tertullian wrote a history about the Apostle John. Apparently, Domitian was an emperor who hated Christians, and he persecuted Christians, and he hated John because John was a Christian, and he was boldly preaching the gospel. And so he wanted to be rid of him, so he brings John into the Colosseum to boil him alive in oil. Painful way to go. John held fast. He didn't recount his faith. He pressed on. He says, Jesus, you're worthy of it all. I will exalt you with my pain and suffering. I will die for you because you're worth it. So the Romans bring him into the Colosseum where the gladiator stuff takes place. There's a huge crowd in there. They're cheering. They dunk John, and as Tertullian writes, they bring him up out of the boil, boiling oil, and he is completely unscathed. And Tertullian says the entire audience in the Colosseum converted to Christ that day. It's beautiful, beautiful. Love it. Take that, Domitian, right? But 
still bent on his evil ways. If he can't kill John, at least I can be rid of him. So he, he exiles him to some no-name place, the island of Patmos, some way off distant island. So that's where we find John. And it's here that Jesus pulls back the curtain and gives him a glimpse of some spiritual realities and a glimpse into the future as well. And we don't have time this morning to unpack all that's in Revelation. And if you're like one of those people who like loves Revelation and times and dates and you know when Jesus is coming back or whatever, you can tell us all that later. And I'll ask you to just kind of set all that aside and just focus on, on what we're going to talk about this morning without, without getting sidetracked with all the dates and, and figures and all that stuff. But I want to pick up in Revelation 6 where we see John has a vision. He, he glimpses into the heavenlies and he sees a vision where... The Lamb, that's Jesus, unrolls these scrolls that are sealed. And there's seven of them. We're going to look at at six of the seals this morning. You may have heard of the the four horsemen of the apocalypse. That comes from Revelation 6. So I want to read it with you. That's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to work through Revelation 6, Revelation 7. We're going to read it a line or two. And then I'm I'm going to tell you what I think it means. All right, so starting in Revelation 6... John writes, he says, I watched as the lamb opened the first of the seven seals. So John, he sees Jesus. Jesus is the lamb. He's pulling back the curtain on the spiritual realities that exist behind the physical ones that we see here in this earth. He says, I I looked, I saw the lamb. He opened the first seal. And here's what I saw. Then I heard one of the four living creatures say in a loud voice like thunder, Come. And we're going to see that phrase repeated a couple times. Come. That could mean it's an invitation to believe in Jesus. I think it means these, these riders, the people that are, the, the horses and the riders, the people that are watching this, I think it's a petition to the Lord because of the suffering that's happened. I think they're saying, Jesus, you need to come because this is horrible. Come. Come quickly. Verse 2. I looked, and there before me, the first seal, there before me was a white horse. Its rider held a bow, and he was given a crown, and he rode out as a conqueror bent on conquest. Have you ever wondered as you looked out on the world, and I did, I remember when Russia invaded Ukraine. Have you ever wondered why a guy like Vladimir Putin, why he would not be just content to rule within the boundaries of Russia as it exists today? It's like, dude, Russia's pretty big, like, you have a lot of people, why why you got to go take Ukraine? You ever wonder that? Am I the only one, right? No one else? Why? Why do, why do rulers, why are they so bent on conquest, on expanding their empires? There's a horseman, a demonic spirit behind this, a spiritual force of darkness giving authority to kings, as the text says, and dictators enticing them, making them bent on conquest. That's the first steal. Verse 3. When the lamb opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come, again, Lord Jesus, come quickly. All of this conquest, the death and suffering, it's terrible. Come quickly. Restore all things. Come. Verse 4, Then another horseman came out, a fiery red one. Its rider was given authority, to, it was given a power to take peace from the earth and to make people kill each other. To him was given a large sword. Jesus spoke of days near the end where there would be wars, rumors of war. 
Hamas killing Israelis, Israelis killing Palestinians, Russians killing Ukrainians, Ukrainians killing Russians, North Korea killing its own people, Americans and Europeans killing hundreds and thousands of innocent children in the womb on a scale that is genocidal. People killing one another. A lack of peace on the earth. Why? Spiritual forces of darkness that reign in the heavenly realms. A red horse and a rider unleashed on the earth given power to take peace and to make people kill one another. Verse 5. When the land opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come. I looked, and there before me was a black horse. Its rider was holding a pair of scales in his hand. Then I heard what sounded like a voice among the four living creatures saying, Two pounds of wheat for a day's wage, and six pounds of barley for a day's wage, but do not damage the oil and the wine. What's going on here? Here we see the injustice of a world system where the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. If you notice the last phrase there, do not damage the oil and the wine. Those are fine luxury goods, church. Those apparently are are flowing amply to the rich, but for the day laborer, for the rest of us, two pounds of wheat costs a day's wage. See, this doesn't necessarily depict a, a state of famine so much as economic disparity between the rich and the poor that is ever growing. Growing. This horseman is one of scarce, scarcity. He carries with him injustice in his scales. The rich get richer. The poor are left to fight and scrap for what's left. Church, the Bible doesn't just tell us what happened. It tells us what always happens apart from Jesus Christ. Beyond the physical realities of this life exist spiritual realities in the heavenly realms. Paul tells us as much in Ephesians 6. He says, We do not wage battle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against powers, against authorities in the dark world, and against spiritual forces of darkness in the heavenly realms, which I believe John is getting a glimpse behind the curtain into. And what John sees in the heavenly realm, it gets worse. In verse 7, When the Lamb opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come, Lord Jesus. I looked, and there before me was a pale horse. Its rider was named Death, and Hades was following close behind him. They were given power over a fourth of the earth to kill by sword, famine, and plague, and by the wild beasts of the earth. Sword, famine, war, Plague of disease and addiction, natural disasters, death by animals. We see all of it every day, don't we, on the news. And so many people shake their fist at God for it, but notice here, who's responsible? The horsemen, evil, the satanic riders bent on stealing, killing, and destroying, bringing conquest. War, economic scarcity, inequality, suffering, and ultimately death. 
And you might be thinking, Levi, I thought you said we were going to hear some good news about death this morning. So far, you've just reminded me of how horrible our world is. Surely Christians, surely God's church will be protected from all of this. Look at, with, look at, look at verse 9. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony that they had maintained. They called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? How long must we suffer? And then each one of them was given a white robe and they were told to wait. Wait just a little while longer until the full number of their fellow servants, their brothers and sisters, were killed just as they had been. Church, here's the sobering reality. The evil and suffering that exists in this life, the church and Christians, we are not sheltered from it. In fact, Sometimes our faith puts a target on our back. And here we see behind the curtain souls of faithful saints who have clung to Jesus even as it cost their very lives. Here we see them crying out to God, How long, how long, O Lord, will you allow this to continue? And here's what I want you to see here, church. The Bible is real. It's a real book in that it it doesn't just gloss over your life It doesn't just paint for you some idealistic rainbows and unicorn type of existence, some utopia. No, it doesn't sugarcoat things. It gives you reality. It tells us how life is and what we can expect. It's true to life. It's one of the reasons why I believe it so much. It shows me what I feel, what I see. It's accurate. It's true. It's good. But sometimes... Its truth is difficult. Verse 12. I looked, and as he opened the sixth seal, there was a great earthquake. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat hair. The whole moon turned blood red, and the stars in the sky fell to the earth as figs dropped from a fig tree and were shaken in a strong wind. The heavens receded like a scroll being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. And then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich and mighty, and everyone else, both slave and free, they hid in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. Why? And they called, they called to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can withstand it? The sixth seal depicts for us, I believe, what is a future event. A great calamity that destroys the world as we know it with such terrible force that all of the inhabitants of the earth are left fleeing for their lives and praying for death. They cry to the mountains, would you just fall on us and end it? It's too much. Why? To hide them from the face of him who sits on the throne. To hide them from the wrath of our God. For the great wrath 
for, for, for the day, great day of their wrath. It's plural. Their. The Godhead. Father. Son. Spirit. The great day of his wrath has come. And who can withstand it? Or as the ESV says it, and I like this better. Who can stand? Who can stand before such great suffering? Who can stand before such great devastation? Who can stand before the wrath of the Almighty God? That's the question for us. It's the question for John as he sees the terrible realities of trials, the tribulation of of life, that we experience pain and suffering and the future wrath that is going to come when Jesus returns upon the earth. Who can stand? All right, Revelation 7. Revelation 7, I think, if you think John's up in heaven, picture him, he's got a, he's got a movie screen playing before him. He sees, he sees the vision of suffering and the, and the tribulation and trials of life being played out before him as the six seals are unwinded in the culmination of the great apocalyptic return of Jesus. It's a, oh, it's a weighty thing. It's a scary thing. And your Lord loves you. He cares deeply for you. And he cares deeply for John. And he gets the sense that, okay, this is almost too much. And so I believe he hits the pause button on the vision. He says, hey, John, before you you get, get too fearful, let's rewind this up a little bit, right? We rewind the vision. And we come back to the beginning. He says, let me show you something else. So we've rewound. This isn't a chronological event. I think he sees Revelation 6. God says, hit pause. We're going to rewind. Let me go back and show you something else behind the curtain. Revelation 7. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds, the horsemen, symbols for evil, The spiritual forces of evil, the four winds, the four horsemen, holding back the four winds to prevent them from blowing on the land or the sea or any tree. (coughs) Then I saw another angel coming up from the east, having the seal of the living God. He's been marked as the Lord's. He called out in a loud voice to the four angels who've been given power to harm the land and the sea, the horsemen. Here's what he says. Do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of God. Don't miss this. Life is hard, yes. Death is a reality with which we must contend. But the God of heaven cares. He cares deeply. Before these wicked angels are unleashed on our world to bring about their suffering and destruction, God commands the heavenlies, just you wait, he says. Hold your horses. Pun intended. (laughs) I'm more proud of that than you are. (laughs) Right? Just you wait, he says. Not before I seal my people. Not before I put my sign upon them and I mark them as mine. Don't you lay a hand on them or my world until my people are marked as mine. Now you've all heard of the mark of the beast. Lots of speculation about that, right? 
The mark is a counterfeit to God's seal that we see here. You see, what what God creates, Satan counterfeits. The mark of the beast is a counterfeit of the seal that is put upon you and me when we express faith in Jesus Christ. We are sealed by God, marked. The mark of the beast is the counterfeit of that. When folks worship any and everything other than the one true Jesus Christ, it's called idolatry, and that puts a mark on them that seals them as a member of the kingdom of darkness. You say, well, I thought it was like a microchip or something. I don't know. It might be. It might have something to do with that. But at the end of the day, the seal of God and the mark of the beast is about your identity. Think of it like a team jersey, or better yet, think of it like a, like a uniform for an army ranger. Who's your uniform? Whose uniform are you wearing? Whose team do you identify with? King Jesus or the prince of this world, the prince of darkness? That's what the mark and the seal are about, identification. Who's your king? Who's your Lord? Who's your savior? I don't want to threaten anyone here this morning. I don't think God threatens anyone of us into salvation. But I do want you to go into this thing with eyes wide open. Revelation 6, the end. Judgment, your judgment, can be bore upon the cross of Jesus Christ so that you might receive grace. Or if you refuse to receive the beautiful gift of grace now and continue and to continue to, to not repent and go down your, your wicked ways. If you continue in that path, eventually the judgment that you and I deserve that Jesus took, eventually if Jesus doesn't take it, he's going to dole it out on you at the end. Seems like an easy choice from my perspective. It's for you free to make it. You might be thinking, well, I don't know, I don't know if Christ sacrifices for me. Is it for me? I thought it was just for the Jews or the people in Israel, right? Where there's a lot of talk about that right now. Who's Christ sacrificed for? That's where Revelation 7, verses 4 through 8 comes in. I believe it's a it's a very often misunderstood section of scripture. There's a number that John hears. He says, I heard a number, 144,000. I hear, I hear who the people of God are, 144,000. I think this is a symbolic number, not a, a specific number of chosen people like the Jehovah's Witnesses would teach. I, I don't think this is accurate. I think it's a symbolic number. And then John gives us a list, and it's a list like any other list we see in the New or Old Testament. It's a list of people from the people of God in the tribes of Israel, the sons of Israel. It's a list like, unlike anything we've ever, ever seen. And I think, I think it's different because John wants us to, to know something different. He's talking about the people of God, the 144,000, and he starts his list with Judah. Why? Because Jesus comes from the tribe of Judah. And John wants us to know that in all things, Jesus Christ is preeminent. He's first. He's foremost. He is the king, the only king, the high king. He comes first. He's preeminent. 
Everything revolves around King Jesus. So he starts with Jesus. Jesus is for everyone. He creates everything. He will save you if you let him. It starts and ends with Jesus. Alpha, Omega. So we see Judah there first. And then we see Reuben, which comes after Judah. Not that weird. What comes next is different and weird. It's a list list of names unlike any other. The sons of concubines are listed next. Gad, Asher, the tribe of Naphtali. Why? Because the people of God are not, it's not about birth order or blood relatives. It's about redemption for even the outcasts. The second class, even the outcasts, they can be included in the people of God. And then next in the list, we see Manasseh. Manasseh's mother was a Gentile. That means if you don't have Jewish blood, if you're a part of the Gentile nation like me and most of us are, God's saying, you can be grafted in to my tribe. Redemption is for you. Even the Gentiles are included. They're included as the true sons of Abraham. Next we see Levi, the priesthood. If you know your Old Testament, you'd find out that when the promised land was given, the Levites did not receive any land in the promised land. And God includes Levi here in this list because he wants us to know that being a part of his people has nothing to do with the geopolitical pile of dirt. With some geopolitical entity, think Israel. You don't get in by moving to Zion or moving to Israel. That's not how you're included in God's people. It's not about land. It's not about blood. It's not about DNA or your success or good deeds. No, you are included in the people of God by faith in the blood of the Lamb. Let's keep reading. After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude. So he hears 144,000, and then after he hears it, he looks up, and what does he see? A great multitude. That's why I think it's symbolic. He sees a great multitude of the people of God. No one could count them from every nation, every tribe, every people and language standing who can stand. Revelation 6, who can stand before the sufferings, the trial, the wrath of God. John looks and he sees a people that no one can count on their feet before the Lord standing before the Lamb. And they were wearing white robes. And they were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb who was slain. And all the angels were standing around. They're standing around the throne and the elders and the four living creatures And they fall down on their faces before the throne and they worship God saying, Amen. Praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. I want you to notice what these saints are saying. Look closely at what they are proclaiming and their position. It is very important because once we learn who they are, it's going to hit us in a powerful way. These folks are utterly sold out for Jesus, church. 
Salvation belongs to him, they shout. He's our rock. He's our redeemer. He's the king. He is who was slain for us. He's the lamb. And they fall down on their faces and they shout crazy amounts of superlatives, right? Praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God. It's true, they say. Amen. It's true. He's good. He's good. He's good. And who are these people proclaiming these places? One of the elders in this vision asked John that exact same question, verse 13. Then one of the elders asked me, these people in white robes, who are they and where did they come from? And John says, I have no idea. Sir, you know. And the elder says, these are they who have come out of the great tribulation They have washed their robes and made them white by the blood of the Lamb. These, church, are the saints who suffered but persevered to the end. They did not lose heart. They did not lose faith. They did not give up. They pressed on. They stayed true to Jesus by faith. They suffered for it. Yes, they did. But they have come out on the other side of the trials of life made white by the blood of the Lamb. And because of that faith, because of their faith, because of your faith in Jesus Christ, here's the reality. We're going to read it. Here's the reality that is theirs and that is ours right now. Today, this is true of them who are in heaven. This is true of us. As we stand and saying you are worthy of it all, we sing with those saints The way they sing right now, salvation, honor, praise, I exalt you. You're exalted. This is our reality by faith. Therefore, verse 15, they are before the throne of God and they serve him day and night in his temple. We serve him day and night in his temple. Boldly we go before the throne of grace because of Jesus Christ into that temple. He comes into us because we are his temple. We serve him day and night in his temple and he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. God's presence is on you by faith. He's with the saints. Never again will they be hungry. We do not live by bread alone, church, but by the word of God that comes from his mouth. Never again will they be thirsty because we have springs of living water in us by the Spirit. The sun will not beat down on them, nor the scorching heat. We will not get burnt by the enemy and his wickedness because our God is our protector and our defender. The Lamb is at the center of the throne and he will be our shepherd. He will care for us. He will corral us and lead us by streams of quiet waters. Even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, He will not forsake us. He will anoint our head with oil. Surely goodness and mercy will follow us to the very end of the age where we meet up with heaven, in heaven, with the saints who are proclaiming the song that we just sang. And when that happens, God will wipe away every tear from our eyes. Amen. Here's the deal, church. Revelation is not so much a roadmap to the end as it is a promise 
to those who feel as if they are already at their end. It's a promise for those of us who have reached our breaking point and say, come Jesus, I can't stand any longer. It's a promise that a new beginning awaits. See, John tells us at the beginning of Revelation, he tells us in Revelation 1.9, he says he is our partner in the tribulation. It's happening. He's our partner in the trials, this great ordeal that we call life, the tribulation. And he's our partner in the kingdom and the patient endurance that are ours in Jesus. And that church is what this life is. It's a trial. It's a great tribulation. But the kingdom of God is breaking in. And held within Jesus is the patient endurance we need to persevere. As you suffer, as I suffer, may we take time to remember the faithful saints who've gone before, who've gone ahead, who've suffered themselves. They ran the race marked out for them well. They finished strong. They did not lose heart. May we remember their testimony and be encouraged not to lose our heart either. Church, you may be hard-pressed on every side, but the saints of heaven declare you will not be crushed. You may be perplexed, but the saints, as the saints of heaven declare, you and I need not despair. You may be persecuted, but as the saints in heaven declare, you will never be abandoned. You may be struck down and experience death in this life, but again, as the saints in heaven declare, you will not be destroyed. In this life, or is this life filled with trial and tribulation? Yes. Will you at times feel as though you are wasting away? Yes. But don't lose heart. Lift your eyes, little flock. Look up. The trials and tribulations of this life are but a light and momentary trouble, and they are achieving for us an eternal weight of glory that far outweighs them all. Don't look to what is seen. Look to the unseen heavenly realms. Look beyond the curtain. And hear the song of the saints of old, what they proclaim. Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. Amen. It's true. Praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Let's pray.